Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 143 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm down here in the bunker on this bright, sunny, nearly spring day here in western Michigan. I'm down here with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling, Dave? I'm doing pretty well, Jeff. Thanks for that uh, nice intro. It occurs to me that this is the fourth springtime now it is. that we are... Um, Promoting this little podcast. It's, it's been it's been that many springtimes? Yes, here we okay. need to have some sentimental music and like a little montage or collage of uh, memories past. Yes, exactly. Just the, kidding, Mishka. Don't do that. Yeah, please. But, no, no, that'd be terrible. Yeah. How are you feeling, Jeff? <laughs> I'm feeling very good. I got, I'm on actually on quote unquote spring break. Oh, uh, really? Actually starting right now. I taught my last class for about a week and a half. And mm-hmm. Has so, it been a, has it been a clean break? Will it be easy to set? Yes, it will be very easy to set. Okay. Right? I've got some, some things on my plate where we're undergoing, um, uh, a number of, um, uh, we're, we're in a hiring process in our department. Oh, really? We've got uh, kind of three different candidates that we need to kind of uh, narrow it down to. Mm-hmm. So that will be on my plate. Nice. Going through. I don't want to spread. I didn't, I mean, I do not want to spread my break kind of going through resumes, but. No, but, no. That happens though. Yep. Um, I think that uh, speaking of hiring and so forth, I was reflecting back, uh, just listener warning here, this is the long setup for a very poor joke. <laughs> I was thinking back about some of my days in uh, old academe. Yeah. And I was thinking about all of those uh, courses on classical myth that I taught. Sure. You taught a number of those, right? Yes, absolutely. Continuously for how many years? Yes. Sometimes double sections. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. I would say, you know, CLAS 231A is so much better than CLAS 231B. And yeah. Then, and then I would tell B the same thing. Yes, of course. Right. Uh, but over time, you know, the very careful um, PowerPoint presentations that I had prepared, did you do that too? Of course. Yes. yes. You know, with their uh, repository of stale Simpsons jokes, <laughs> eventually it occurred to me that this is getting a little bit dated. Yes. And the students, they kind of were letting me know <laughs> that this was getting a little bit dated. Yeah. And at some point it dawned on me, I'm actually just Slideshow Bob. <laughs> uh, nice. Was, yeah. it wor- was it worth it? Uh, it? It was a long way to get there, but I, I liked it. Okay. I, like, I hope the audience will, will like that one I too. don't know. Are yeah. you Slideshow Bob? Oh, totally Slideshow Bob. Lots and lots of slideshows? Right. <laughs> lots of slideshows. Do you use transitions? At one point to try to spice things yeah. up, I put in those little um, transition sounds. You know, not, not just the fade, the star wipe. Right. But, uh, you know, this whishing arrow or the bell or the chime. Right. That's desperate. Anything to keep these kids entertained, right. you know? Yeah, I've, I've tried that where you, 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 you advance the slide and the thing like spins like a box. Correct. Right. <laughs> and then sometimes there's a sound effect like explosion was a good one. So I once gave a lecture <laughs> on Oedipus Rex, you yeah. know, and after every slide it was explosion. <laughs> Truth bomb. <laughs> every slide. Right. 45 slides. If you're going to go in, you got to go all That's right. Right, right. I mean, the students were rolling their eyes, but I did not relent. No, right. You kept through it. No, That's I, right. I admire that. You got to stick to it That's to the right. end. But I'm with you. I know about the, um, going through the, 
the slideshows and thinking, wow, this this may have worked in right 1999. I don't know, even even 2003, 2004. <laughs> professors who were using PowerPoint, like myself and you, uh-huh. we were cutting edge. Oh, we were. We were hip. Right, right, but right. But now um, we should have been put out to pasture a long time ago. Yeah, I guess so. There's, I mean, there's all of these plugins that they want you to use oh, yeah. now too, that you can kind of, you know, uh, you can connect all of this this wild software. But, Correct. But I just, who's I, got the time for that? Who's got the time for it? And I just feel this. I mean. The old man in me kicks in, and I right. just, um, I'm crotchety. Gonna, sorry, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig up uh, uh, you know, jokes from 1996, and I'm gonna that's uh, right. Like you, with you with the explosions, I'm gonna tell them anyway. That's correct. That's right. in, in the words of Grandpa Simpson, the important thing is that I had an onion tied to my belt, <laughs> which was the style at the time. That's right. <laughs> so Jeff, do we have yeah. a do we have a uh, a shout out today? Not a specific shout out, okay. but, but we do have a corrigendum. Oh, a corrigendum. Yes, from uh, from the last show. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So on the last show, we were very pleased to host uh, Dr. Ann Larson and Dr. Steve Milo. Yes. And Ann, uh, very wisely, sent us her own corrigendum. I think this is a first. <laughs> We've corrected ourselves many times. Yes. Uh, you probably not enough. We've never had a guest come <laughs> on and uh, then say, please correct this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to read it? Sure. Uh, so she says that um, uh, she mentioned during the podcast that uh, von Skurman mm-hmm. uh, had done 20 self-portraits during the 1630s. And says, what I should have said is that she may have done 20 self-portraits, but only 10 of these are extant. Extant, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So I love so much about this corrigendum. Yeah. Uh, first, I like that she made the corrigendum. Mm-hmm. Secondly, uh, I'm grateful that she's concerned that she not exaggerate the number of self-portraits that von Skurman made. Mm-hmm. You know, because the consequences for society at large uh, could be devastating. Yes. Uh, third, I like the fact that she ended the corrigendum with the word extant. Yeah. Uh, about midway through graduate school, Mrs. Noe turned to me and said, you know, you're using that word extant a lot. <laughs> and, <laughs> so and what was do you she mean? Right? Were you? Yeah. Uh, it occurred to me yeah. that, yes, once I learned that word, you know, for example, um, Ovid's uh, tragedy, the Medea, is not extant. Yes. Um, then I started using extant all over the landscape, <laughs> and uh, she was right. Yeah. You could say that my uh, extant extent was, um, you know, was too much. Too much. Mm-hmm. Too much. Yeah. I like this corrigendum, too. I mean, because it, it just shows me that. And it struck me, too, in interviewing uh, Dr. Larson, is that this is, a, this is someone who dots her eyes and crosses her teeth. This is a fine scholar. It's Both a, of them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Definitely got that impression. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't call either of them a slideshow bob. No. No, exactly. So where are we going today, Jeff? What's up? We are back in uh, to the Meru text, right. right? The history of education. And this this uh, week we are uh, tackling Plato. Mm-hmm. So no small no small feat. Uh, it's funny that you'd say it that way, tackling Plato, yeah. uh, because the name Plato is actually a nickname. Right. It was not his given name. Uh, Plato means broad-shouldered or perhaps broad forehead. I like forehead platoon. Right. <laughs> so tackling Plato, you know, is a is a challenge. It's a challenge, right? Exactly. Right. E- whether that means broad shoulders or large forehead. That's correct. Right? Both intimidating. Yes. <laughs> uh, either way, I wouldn't want to go, you know, toe to toe or brow to brow yeah. uh, with Mr. Plato. Exactly. So well, that's uh that's our in lieu of a shout out, yeah. and uh, we have an opening quote, do we not? We do. This is from uh, one John Dillon. Yes. Right? And I I remember reading him extensively when I was in graduate school. He's, I did as well. He's written a lot on the Platonist. His book on the on the middle Platonist is, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And we're quoting here from a book by his called The Heirs of Plato, right? That's correct. Yep. So John Dillon, I believe, is a, a scholar um, who worked in Ireland, mm-hmm. and uh, he was good friends with my advisor at, at Iowa, John Finnamore. So oh. that's how I got turned on to John Dillon's work. Okay. And I actually got to review this work for the Bryn Mawr Classical Review in uh, 2003. Two thumbs up? 
Uh, yes. yes. Oh, I raved. You, you I raved. Did, did you? All right. And uh, I think I got to, to review it not because they thought, hmm, who knows a lot about and likes Plato? Oh, that Noe guy. Yeah let's, yeah. let's get him to review. It was more along the lines of, this is the book that no one has picked up. <laughs> and then I, I spoke for it. Right. But I mean, it, it was not picked up for any, it was not not picked up for any lack of merit. Yes. It's just that people's interests in Plato are not what they should be, Right, frankly. So if our listeners are, are at all interested, you can go to the Bryn Mawr Classical Review webpage and they will have a list of, of books up for review. That's correct. And if you are a, if you're a scholar, if you're not a scholar, right. you can send a note and say, hey, I would like to review this. And, and That's right. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's a fantastic resource. Sometime yeah. we should do a show just on that. Yeah. You know, trolling, yeah. Th- trolling through the BMCR, right. the Bryn Mawr Classical Review. Mm-hmm. So I reviewed this, uh, really enjoyed the book, uh, and it's The Heirs of Plato, 2003, Oxford University Press. We're going to read a little bit here from pages seven and eight uh, as our opening quote. Yes. Begins like this. It is plain, however, that a certain proportion of the day, this means the day of the Academy of Plato, Uh, A certain proportion of the day was spent in the park, either in an alcove in the gymnasium or walking about among the trees, the peripetos, in full view of the public. We have contemporary evidence from comic poets, Epicrates and Alexis, for example, to attest to this. The fragment of Epictetes, fragment 10 from Castle and Austin, is perhaps worth quoting in full as affording a unique glimpse, albeit through comic spectacles, of how the activities of the school might have appeared to a member of the general public. Hmm. Two characters are conversing. So, Jeff, there's the there's the setup, right? right? And uh, I guess in the frame, we don't know who these characters are, right? Because it doesn't really matter. This is a comic setup. That's right. It yeah. being a fragment, we don't even know their names. Right. So Dylan just refers to them as A and B. Okay. And they're engaged in this dialogue about, you know, this comic dialogue about the typical affairs of Plato's Academy. Academy. All right. In the wake of his death. Yes. All right, so I'll play the role of A, and mm-hmm. you play B. So let's, let's do it. All right, so A says, What are Plato and Spusippus and Menedemus up to? On what subject are they discoursing today? What weighty idea, what line of argument, Logos, is currently being investigated by them? Tell me this accurately, in Earth's name, if you've come with any knowledge of it. Why, yes, I can tell you about these fellows with certainty. For at the Panathenaea, I saw a troop of lads in the exercise grounds of the academy and heard utterances indescribable, astonishing, for they were propounding definitions about nature and separating into categories the ways of life of animals, the nature of trees, and the classes of vegetables. And in this connection, they were investigating to what genus genus one should assign the pumpkin. And what definition did they arrive at, and of what genus is the plant? Well, now, first of all, they all took up their places, and with heads bowed, they reflected a long time. Then suddenly, while they were still bent low in study, one of the lads said that it was a round vegetable. Another said it was a grass. Another that it was a tree. When a doctor from Sicily heard this, he dismissed them contemptuously as talking rubbish. And then B speaks again. Oh, yes. No doubt they got very angry at that and protested under such insults, for it is unseemly to behave thus in such public gatherings. No, in fact, the lads didn't seem to mind at all. And Plato, who was present very mildly and without irritation, told them to try again to define the genus to which the pumpkin belongs. And they started once again to attempt a division. <laughs> I wonder if they ever figured it out. What? Or was it an operia? They come to oh, a pathless, right? right? <laughs> like the Euthyphro at the very end of the dialogue. Yeah. You know, is the pious the God loved or is the God, God loved the pious? Right. 
So to what genus does a pumpkin belong? But I have That's no difficult way. to know. It's very difficult to know. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this re- this reminds me a lot of uh, Aristophanes' Clouds, right. right? Where you have uh, the students of the the of the Think Shop, you know, um, talking about you know flea flatulence. And That's world, right. right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dylan goes on and says, "Comedy this may be, but it can also be seen as a valuable glimpse of real life by an eyewitness. Epicrates testifies to the conduct of the school's business in public in the park." He is also acquainted with the technical terminology, aphoridzane, uh, which means to, um, you know, to categorize, genos, which is the genus or the category, and diirene, which means uh, to give a division. What he portrays the students as doing is trying to fix on a starting point for a division or diaresis, which would lead to a properly scientific definition, identifying all the differentiae of the particular species within a given genus to which the pumpkin belongs. And thus the suggestions grass, tree, while comical enough, are not entirely crazy, despite the strictures of the Sicilian doctor. In short, it is not unreasonable to credit Epicrates with knowing something of what he is portraying and expecting his audience to have similar knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yes, good. So d- despite the comic setup, we, we, you can't just reject it all. It's just simply a ridiculous fantasy. Right. Yeah. In part because, I mean, this is a bit of a digressio, comedy doesn't work if the audience has no idea what you're talking exactly. about. There have to be particulars in place, and then you make fun of those particulars, right. as Epicrates is doing. It's interesting. I, um, I'm sure we'll get around to this, but you know, Maru, um, he talks about how, we, how little we know of the day-to-day um, operation of the academy. Right. right? And so we, you have to look to things like this to at least get a, a bit of a sense of, okay, what, was a, what, you know, what did a lecture look like? What did a discussion look like? Right. What, what was going on? Right. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm did so Plato glad use this... did Plato use PowerPoint, for example? <laughs> right. What were his transitions? Right, right. And I think one of the, I think this ages really well. Yeah. Because I I think that that the the outsider look at uh, what goes on or what uh, what sometimes goes on in universities and colleges just looks like just utter ridiculousness. Oh yeah. Right? And, and and so I think it's it's a a subject that was ripe for parody you know, 2,500 years ago and, and to this day. Right for Perry. Yeah. All right. So Jeff, as we get into it, mm-hmm. uh, moving on from chapter five in Mahu, which was about sophistry, mm-hmm. we are now in chapter six. Yes. And chapter six is um, Plato, right? Right. So the generation of Socrates and the sophists, full of ideas, but chaotic and without focus. It's in the fourth century that Greek education comes fully into its maturity and takes on a form that lasts for well into the Roman era. And I would say that, I mean, a lot of these divisions and um, the structure that kind of comes out of the academy and, and these Platonic ideas exists to this day, right? Yes. I mean, in this formal sense, yes, through the Roman era, but this, and in some sense, this stuff has never gone away. Yeah, and I would just like to make a point here, um, namely that how many times have you heard in various... Uh, settings within academia as you move from undergrad to grad and then different institutions where you've taught Mm -hmm. that the so-called Socratic method is superior to other kinds of instruction. Yeah. And sadly, this speaking for myself, I have heard people say that who know nothing about Socrates or Plato have not read Plato or very little. Yeah. And I think frankly are pretty confused about what the Socratic method is. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Have you experienced that? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, right. It's, it becomes one of those things that, um, you mentioned using the Socratic method and, right. and everybody just kind of nods along. Correct. And, and, yeah. This idea that, oh yes, that, that's vastly superior than just straight lecture. Right. Right. Exactly. So there's a thin crust of Socrates or thin layer of Socrates spread on something I don't know, that goes down deep and is pretty much just what people want to do. Yes. So I'm going to do what I've always done, but I'm going to um, 
attempt or appear to engage with the students and ask a couple questions. Right. This is not really the Socratic method. No, no, exactly. It, it becomes a kind of a stand-in for, we have discussions in here. That's right. Right. The Socratic method is typically one person via the Alancus, right, the system of refutation, I'm mm -hmm. going to give a definition here, interrogating one individual. Yes. And the individual, it's not a group discussion, the individual is typically um, not all that willing Right. That's right. The uh, the the person, the, the Socrates in that situation, has to work extraordinarily hard to draw from his interlocutor answers. Yes. And sometimes the answers are poor and wandering and digressive. Um, but the the questioner, the Socrates, has to stick at it in more like a catechism style until eventually, what happens? I mean, you mentioned it already. Uh, the aporetic dialogues. What typically happens to the person whom Socrates is questioning? What happens at the end? Yeah, there's oh, we we don't have an answer. Correct. Right. It, you you you. The leave. person marches away. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. In frustration. Exactly. Right. You're, I'm not going to answer that question. Right. And, uh, and makes fun of Socrates, typically, who's asking these really pointed questions. Very good. Yeah, and I think like, so the better corollary is not a classroom discussion, but it's a prosecutor with a hostile witness. I think that's fair. Right. <laughs> uh, you start out with hoping that the witness will be friendly. Yes. But over the course of it. Uh, the witness, as his ignorance is exposed further and further, mm -hmm. tends to become quite hostile. Right. And so I think one of the things that Socrates is proving is that people really don't know anything at all. Right. And if you press them on things they hold dear, there's not much except emotion and desire supporting their beliefs and ideas. Right. And so I, uh, I've always, when I read those those dialogues, um, and one of my takeaways is that these are, in terms of the truths that they're arriving at, right. it's it's much more about kind of revealing um, you know, parts of human nature. That's right. Than it is um, figuring out what is virtue. Correct. Right. Is it that's that's uh, that's secondary at best. Right. Yeah. Now I've I've painted a pretty cynical picture. I do think that the Socratic method is an ideal, an excellent way of education, uh, but I don't think it's well understood. And you pointed out quite well that um, it doesn't have primarily to do with discussion by a group. Right. And there's never a and never an instance in the Socratic dialogues that I can think of where Socrates, uh, you know, as Plato pens him, says something like, "Okay, what do you all think?" Yes. Let's all <laughs> let's all talk about this right. together, or let's break up into groups, right. and we'll find out <laughs> yeah. right what each of us thinks. Right. That's not it at all. Exactly. It begins yeah. with someone making an outrageous claim, like uh, Euthyphro, to use that example, um, along the lines of, "I know." precisely what holiness is yeah. to Hosseon because look I'm I'm prosecuting my own father for an accidental murder yeah and then uh, Socrates says well do you really do you really Euthyphro know what the holy is <laughs> uh, of course I do and then it just you know it descends from there you might say right I I, I kind of hear that um, it's a it's a sarcastic tone that I often hear from my my children it's like I you know I know what holy holiness is in Socrates response well do you? Do you? Do you really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what Socrates is doing. So yeah. to my mind, uh, it doesn't resemble what I hear people primarily advocating for in terms of the superiority of the Socratic method. Right. I, it, I the, Kind of the one example, uh, kind of more you know, modern example that I've heard that kind of matches it better is I remember one of my grad school advisors um, did a stint at Oxford. Okay. And I remember him talking about... You know, one of the um, things that they had to do, they were matched up with a with a tutor, uh, in in that in that context, the tutor was a professor, and each week they were assigned a reading, 
And then they had a one-on-one meeting with the tutor, and the tutor would interrogate them about yeah. the reading. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and and challenge them kind of every step of the way. And that sounds to me that's closer. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah, that reminds me of an anecdote. And uh, be ready, Mishka, because I'm going to ask you to put a, a horn blowing sound in here. Yes. Uh, one of the nicest compliments I ever got from a student was uh, in a Latin class. And uh, so I'm blowing my own horn a little bit. The student wrote on the evaluation, although there were 12 or 15 people in the class, it seemed like uh, Professor Noe was dealing with each one of us individually. Mm. Now, I don't think the student meant it as a compliment, honestly. I think, really? I, well, I think it made him kind of uncomfortable. Oh. That, okay. you know, I put the spotlight on that student intensely. Yes. For 90 seconds, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then it moves on to the next person. Right. It was a language class, a Latin class, and a small one, about 12 persons. So yeah. you could actually do that, right? Yep. So I was trying to, um, I was trying to engage in the Socratic method, but it was not a break into groups and let's see what we all think about Latin. Right. Right, right, right. I think that's a tremendous compliment. You do? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'd walk away from it with that very proud. Should we have uh, Mishka cue the music again? <laughs> Look at a little syrupy in here. <laughs> well, I mean, when people blow their own horns, that's uh, that's pretty obnoxious. So chapter six. Yes. The masters of the classical tradition, Plato. Jeff, you want to read the opening paragraph here sure. so we can give Maru his due? Yes. He writes... The generation of Socrates and the great Sophists, a generation so fruitful in in ideas, but so incohate and confusing, was succeeded by a new generation destined to bring Greek education to maturity. This education had long been arrested at the archaic stage of its development and uncertain of its future. It now achieved that final form, which remained intact through all later developments and was the hallmark of its originality to historians. Hmm. Interesting. So a lot of these kind of these loose threads. Uh, so I think in the the last episode we did with Maru, we were talking about the sophists, right? And it was a really kind of ad hoc, yes, um, teaching for hire. You'd show up at at Olympia and, and right. gather a crowd, try to find some students. You'd have, l- right. like the guy who shows up with his, uh, you know, his apothecarist's wagon of medicines, hey, totally yeah. selling a kind of intellectual snake oil. Yes, or not, depending on how. Um, how much of a uh, caricature Plato's giving us. Right, right, but, right. But like you were saying, very unclear. There was no hierarchy. There was no um, you know, bureaucracy. There was no real organization uh, to it. And little, if any, thought about um, students at this age should be studying this. Correct. And moving on to you know various different subjects. Yes. That's right. Yep. So then Malkru goes on and he says that uh, this was essentially the result of the work of two great teachers. That is this reformulation. Uh, was essentially the result of the work of two great teachers, Plato, 427 to 348. So Plato born two years after the Great Plague Mm -hmm. uh, and dying in 348, which is right before the rise of Alexander. Yes. uh, In, what was it, 336 when he began his campaigns. Right. And Isocrates, 436 to 338. So um, a little bit older contemporary, but uh, outlived him by a decade. Wow. Yeah. Isocrates did. The former, Plato, opened his school in 387, and the latter, Isocrates, in 393. All right. All right, Dave, let's talk about um, what Plato does after the death of Socrates, 399. Right. And between that and when he founds his academy in 387. So there's okay. some, really, some interesting stuff that happens in those 12 years. That's correct. Right. So he goes off to, uh, to Sicily. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently, while in Sicily, he's there, uh, he tries to... Um, impose, persuade uh, the local magistrates to implement some of his political ideas. Right. Right. Kind of like the philosopher king notion, which is so prevalent in the Republic. Yes. Yep. And uh, the Republic may have been written around 
386. Okay. That's one theory. Uh, one of the things he did for sure is to begin to write down or at least to dramatically craft the things he had learned from Socrates. Yes. So the so-called Socratic question covered by scholars like Vlastos, this is massive and beyond the scope of this episode. Really. Yeah. In other words, what is the exact relationship between Socrates' thought and Plato's presentation of Socrates' thought? Right, right, right. So we yeah. know that Socrates was a historical figure because his life is recorded by Xenophon and many others. Mm -hmm. But we don't know to what extent Plato has turned him into something he wasn't. Right, right, exactly. To when does it, is it an accurate biographical presentation and when is Socrates just a mouthpiece for Platonic ideas? Yes, yep. certainly by the late dialogues. The most famous are the Timaeus and the Laws. We no longer have that elenctic back and forth, uh, the stichomythia, kind of like in tragedy. Yeah. But what we have instead is Socrates giving long, complicated speeches. Right. You know, they're like essays, really. Exactly. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. The Timaeus is a fascinating dialogue. It's just not very much dialogue anymore. Right. Probably maybe more reflective of maybe what Plato was actually doing at the academy. Yes, that could be. Right. That's yeah. one of the theories. So he goes off to Syracuse. Mm -hmm. uh, Dion, I think, is the uh, is the tyrant. Is that right? Yes. Is that well, was that his full name, or was it was it? You think the, the first name was Celine? Celine maybe? Dion. <laughs> uh, let me just say one of Canada's greatest exports. <laughs> you, you don't agree? I do not agree, but no. we, we can agree to disagree. Okay. Yeah. Well, but, I, I think that when Celine hits those three or four notes, which are in the center of her range, yes, she owns those. Okay. Well, she can have those. She can. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So he thinks, I'm going to set up a kind of um, philosopher's republic because my student, Dion of Syracuse, mm -hmm. um, you know, is going to actually reign with justice. Right. Failed experiment. Right. We have some uh, letters uh, of Plato from that time period in which he discusses these matters. The letters are gen generally thought to be authentic, uh, although maybe not all of them. Mm. Do you, um, do you, you, don't have, you don't have those in front of you, do you? No, okay. I don't. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the collection on the Edith Hamilton Oh yeah, uh, volume. Right, right, right. Which includes specifically the seventh letter is uh, of very great significance. Yeah. So this this attempt it fails. Right. Um, but Plato does not give up on these. He go, he returns to Sicily later in his life, and and so this seems to be uh, uh, something that he keeps coming back to. That's right. Um, but it re the attempt itself reminds me that we're still um, a ways away from uh, Platonic education. Correct. You know, offered as a system. As a system, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems that. Um, Plato's original intent in that in as much as he was thinking about um, using his ideals to educate it was uh, had to, for the practical ends of, of running a state right right and it was not for the masses it was for the elite right and in, indeed a lot of his is um, his early attempts at education education and even the early days of the, the academy were seemed to be geared towards training leaders yes and that was not for everybody right yep Although a philosophical education, this is how the story is typically told, in the wake of Alexander the Great and kind of the death of the polis, yes. or, or at least the diminishment of the polis, philosophical education eventually became focused more on the inner life right. rather than the training of uh, politicians. Right, right, right. I thought that was one of the, re the really interesting things that Maru points out. He talks about how um, you know Plato, in his writings, has this ideal of philosophers should be looking for the truth yes and the truth is discoverable and by and you do this by pursuing uh the truth through rational mm -hmm. knowledge rational means 
and he may have intended that early on as um, you know, by seeking the truth, you would become a better leader. Yes, but that ideal becomes in the, in the Periclean mold. Yeah, right, or the early Alcibiades. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, but that ideal is is it works very well in a, on a mass market scale. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a, it's very translatable. Yeah, uh, to a, a larger group, and so it was easily went from something that was maybe intended just for the elites to something much more broader based. Yes, yeah. So one of the one of the common understandings of this era, and now we're kind of shading into stuff we talked about when we were talking about my dissertation. Mm-hmm. This is again when the horn blowing sound, I suppose, could come back in. But don't do it, Mishka. <laughs> uh, Dylan and A.A. Uh, a. Long and other you know famous scholars of this era say that really what was at stake is who can claim the Socratic mantle, right? Mm-hmm. Is it Plato's Academy? Is it the Aristotelians? Uh, is it the Stoics? Mm. Or is it the Epicureans? Yeah. And there's a fight. There's an actual fight for attention, influence, students. Who is the genuinely uh, Socratic individual or school? Yeah, yeah, And the answer is basically the Stoics win. They win. The Stoics win in the end because they manage to uh, subsume under their umbrella uh, everything that the academy is teaching. Yes. And they avoid politically unpopular positions like the Epicureans, which is retreat from public life right 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 but it has to be by a focus on ethics yes right and so i think that you know by the time you get down to you know what are called the middle platonists or the right. neoplatonists uh you know well into the roman era mm-hmm. second third fourth century um a lot of that has a very distinctive stoic flavor definitely it, right yeah that's really really interesting so jeff let's pick up here on uh, page 63 of mahru under the uh, heading plato's political career and ideals could you just read the first portion there Uh, ending with uh, the quote from Plato's letter. Sure. First, I shall deal with Plato as the founder of a predominantly philosophical type of culture and education. Though his main object was political, not philosophical. But history records many such tricks of fate. In his admirable letter number seven, written about 353 or 352, when he was 75 years old, Plato gives us a touching revelation of the dreams of his youth and admits his his disillusionment. A long time ago, When I was a young man, I wanted, like so many others, to devote myself to politics as soon as I became my own master. Hmm. Right. Did you you feel that way when you were young? About devoting myself to politics? Never. Never? (laughs) No. No. I went through that stage. Did you really? Yeah. Like you thought I might might run for office one day or something? I did go through that stage. Did you really? Yes. Wow. Are you surprised? Uh, no, actually, I'm not okay, surprised. Okay, see? Right. So, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm surprised. Because it, it oh, takes great vanity, right? I get, yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess I'm always surprised when I learned that anybody would actually right. voluntarily want to go into politics. Right. So you're deeply that. Epicurean, aren't you? I guess so. I guess well, so. I think I, I was it. just, I was just fired. My imagination was fired by the stories of men who had done great things hmm. in public life. You know, the Winston Churchill, Cicero, Frederick Douglass. Yeah. I thought the, this is really neat, right? This, okay. this is incredible. And look at how they were great speakers and they made difficult decisions. Right. Right. The the rulers of the city of man, as Augustine calls them. Yes. There's something very alluring um, in that. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But yeah. then everyone typically makes a turn, I would say, uh, mid to late 20s. Yes. They start to, I mean, you were just ahead of your time, I guess. <laughs> they start to think more like you do. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why would anyone want to get involved with that? There's no glamour and principle. It's all about, um, I don't know, cutting corners. It's it's all sophistry. That's right. Right. So uh, I I wanted I thought it'd be worth it's worth pointing out that you know we talked about um, Plato going off to to Sicily. It wasn't right. it wasn't just certainly on on a whim. 
but he was also responding to what was happening back in in Athens, right? Um, so um, you have the um, the loss to the Spartans in the Peloponnesian War. Yes. You have the, kind of the rise of the tyrants, but ultimately you have the return of the democracy. Yes. Right? And I found that too when I, when I've taught this in you know, in various courses or taught about Plato. Uh, yeah, I often find that if my students have a notion about Plato, or if they know something about ancient Athens, they will often make this assumption: Plato was an ancient Athenian, and so therefore he was uh, a, a champion of democracy, a, right? And he was not couldn't be couldn't farther be, from the truth, right? So exactly, when he goes to Sicily, he's propagating ideas that are not he's not spreading the democratic ideals of ancient Definitely Athens. Not. Quite the opposite, right? Right, and so um, it was there was no place for him, uh, a guy like him when the democracy turned after that that period of chaos yes. after Socrates' death. Yeah. Yep. Mahru says, uh, picking up just where you left off, in his outlook, Plato was not in advance of his time. The 4th century had already witnessed the breakup of the narrow framework of the city-state and the first flowering of that personalism, which was to achieve its triumph in the Hellenistic era. And already many of his fellow disciples, such as Aristippus and Antisthenes, were proclaiming themselves, quote, citizens of the world, cosmopolites, mm. right? That was... Uh, Socrates' moniker, I'm a yes. citizen of the world, a right. cosmopolites. But he himself remained a man of the old city-state, that is, a champion of aristocracy, right. much like Aristophanes. Yes, exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, you know, Plato has, has earned that, that notion of him being kind of curmudgeonly, mm -hmm. right? Like a gr grumpy old man. That's why I love him so much. <laughs> yeah. But you were going to say more there, and I, I cut you off. No, I just I thought I, I thought that was worth kind of putting into into context. With, uh, you know, his letter when he says, you know, a long time ago I went and I wanted to devote myself to politics. I think it, it's worth clarifying that he wasn't talking about you know running for for office in some kind of uh, idealized democracy. Yes, right? his political ideals were like an old school aristocratic and elitist. Yes, I think you could say there's as large a gap between. Uh, people's understanding of the Socratic method and Socrates, mm -hmm. as there is between people's admiration for Plato and their knowledge of what he really advocated. Indeed, indeed, yes. So you want to pick up at the bottom of uh, page 64, because we have a little more here on uh, Plato as an educator of politicians before we um, pivot to use the ubiquitous basketball metaphor yes. uh, to something else. <laughs> sure. Can you start with in all this? Yeah, so in all this, he was helped by his pupils. For the academy was a school, not only of philosophy, but also of political science. It was a seminary that provided counselors and lawgivers for republics and reigning sovereigns. Plutarch gives a list of the statesmen Plato helped to produce, and they were found in every part of the Hellenic world. Now, check out this list. So we have uh, Selene, Dion of Syracuse, Python, and Heraclides. Heraclides. Heraclides, sorry, the liberators of Thrace, uh, Cabrias and Phocion, the great Athenian generals, uh, Aristom uh, Aristominus, the lawgiver of Megalopolis and Arcadia, Formion of Elis, Menedemus of Pyrrha, Eudoxus of Cnidus, Aristotle of Stagira, and lastly, Xenocrates, advisor to Alexander. So hmm. All of these were products of his, um, of his political... His, his, his political finishing school. Yes, exactly. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. Yep. So you go in, you do your three years time, right? You move from the you know, the dining hall to the lecture hall, and then you, uh, I don't know, you check your email in between, and mm -hmm. you get back in, and you listen to Plato, then you go back to your hometown, you run for office. Right. Now right. you're ready to be a philosopher king. Right, and you've, uh, and all on the way, clearly you've done some uh, networking and That's schmoozing, right. right? It's about who you know. That's right. right. So Is this also what kept you out of politics, <laughs> Winkle? Yeah, I'm not a good schmoozer. No. Right. That was always the, I remember at, um, you know, the, the big... Um, 
uh, annual hullabaloo, the APA. Oh, it's not right. called that anymore. I don't um, think they call it the big annual hullabaloo, no. <laughs> no they, they drop that? Right, yeah. Right. It's the Society for <laughs> Classical Studies, yes. the SCS. That big jamboree. Right. I remember when I was kind of finishing up grad school and I was starting to kind of think about jobs and my advisor says, you've got to get out there and mm-hmm. just kind of start shaking hands and that's kissing right. babies and, and oh, nothing makes me more uncomfortable. Mm. So I guess if that's another thing that I can... You were more hob than knob, I, we yeah, might say. Yeah, exactly. I was, it was, it was terrible, terrifying. Mm. Yeah. But you've made it. I so made it. You've arrived. Exactly. Says yeah. Mahu, but even this long list is incomplete, for we must at least add Calippus, the murderer of Dion of Syracuse, <laughs> Clearchus, the tyrant of Heraclea and Pontus, and his opponent, Keon. Can you imagine two political opponents, both students of Plato, and uh, they're running for the same office or competing for the same political prize? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Elfreos, who was advisor to Perdiccas III of Macedonia, before he became the champion of democracy and independence in his native city of Oreos, or as someone pronounce it, Oreos. Oreos. <laughs> in Euboea, Erastus and Coriscus, who governed Assos and were the allies of Hermaeus of Artaneus, perhaps even Hermaeus himself. That's a long list. It is. Of political influence. Plato couldn't have been happy when Hermaeus became a champion of democracy. No, he so couldn't. Have I taught you nothing? That's correct. <laughs> right. Yes, he was not pleased. Yes. And speak of speaking of teaching us nothing. Yes. I think it's time for the ads. All right. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Ratio Coffee, or as we like to say, as easy as pods, but so much better. Mm-hmm. Take it away, Jeff. Yes. So, uh, ever wonder what the convenience of a Keurig costs? Or um, oh, I, did I just say out loud the name of another brand? I think you're, su- you're okay. Oh, okay, okay. But what do we typically call it? Um, is, what was it again? The, well, it the sounds... Mar- the Marsipods. It sounds more guttural if you say Gurik. Gurik. Yes. Like it's just spitting up your coffee. And Gurik is the company that produces the little Marsipods. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's a right. little Joey in every bag. That's right. Exactly. So, ever wonder what the convenience of a Gurik costs? We did too. On average, $33 to $50 a pound, depending on the roaster. For mediocre coffee brewed with haste and waste at the forefront into throwaway plastic pods, we, Ratio, offer a better way. Buy fresh from your local roaster and have the four, the Ratio four, yes. brew up a cup and the taste will be monumentally better. Mm. Right. So this is coming down the line. Coming down the line. Yes. That's right. Meet the Ratio four, the first affordable and beautiful half batch. Pour-over coffee machine. The four is our smallest brewer yet. An agile, sleek machine. You know, Jeff, mm-hmm. I'm hoping someday I get described that way. That's <laughs> a sleek machine. Agile, no, agile <laughs> and sleek. <laughs> right. Yeah, that Noah, he's an agile, sleek machine. Anyone ever described you as agile That's and sleek? Never, that has never shown up in any of my teaching evaluations. Not even when you were <laughs> filling cream horns? Way back when? Yeah, that no. Winkle. He's agile and, and sleek. sleek. No, neither of those would have applied. Yes. Have you ever put out between five and 20 ounces of coffee? <laughs> per batch? Never. Never. Yeah, I can't compare to this thing. No. Yeah. Enough for one to two reasonably sized cups or one big travel mug. Yes. What else can we say about the forthcoming Ratio 4? It brooms with a bloom cycle. And whoa, 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 whoa. What? I'm sorry. Brooms? What? Did I say brooms? You did. It brews with a bloom cycle in about four minutes or less. It's got a removable water tank that can be positioned on the left, the right, or behind. Mm-hmm. Can Small- your water tank be removed? <laughs> no, it cannot. <laughs> it's small enough to fit on any countertop uh, at just 11 and a half uh, inches tall, seven and a half inches wide, built to last and backed by a five-year warranty. That's one impressive machine. It is. And it's it's affordable. So, Correct. Um, now, we yes. should say, Jeff, Yes. the six and the eight mm-hmm. are also affordable, Yep. but they're just not quite as 
attainable, right? You might yep. say the price point is a little bit higher, right? Yeah, yep. but this is a a great way if you uh, you can't bring yourself to or you you can't uh, get to to be able to afford one of the sixes or the eights. The four might be a great way to mm-hmm. to to get into the ratio family. And That's really correct. See what these machines can do. And what can they do? Do they make great coffee? Well, they make great coffee, right? They look beautiful. Yes. Um, it's something that's going to last and last that you can pass down to your kids if you want to. That's right. So, what should uh, listeners do if they want to get in on the ratio they action? They should go to ratiocoffee.com. That's r a t i o coffee.com. Find the machine that you want uh, and plug in this coupon code. It's a n c o. 6S. 6S. This is the March code, isn't it? It is. Now, we hope that this episode drops. We hope it's going to drop, as they say, on uh, February what? February 27, uh, I yes. think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 29. So it, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, 27. I You're think right. it's 27. 27, yeah. So, I, I believe the February code is uh, ANCO um, 3Q, if I remember. Yeah, that's right. The Q was quiescent. But the March code again, Jeff, what was the March code? It is code? A-N-C-O-6-S, and the S is going to stand for sleek. Yeah, sleek. Yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> and what will that get the listener? That will get them uh, a wonderful 15% off your entire order. That's incredible. Be sure to check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by the great folks at Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, uh, in business for about 350, 53 years now. 350 years. Right, they'll be a wow. lot. They will be around that long. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm confident. Um, but they've been uh, bringing uh, the classics and uh, many other titles of academia from all kind of corners of that universe to the public for 53 years now. Uh, they're attractive. They're affordable. The translations are, are great. They're reliable. And they've been with us from the very beginning of, Absolutely. of this little podcast. Yep. And so, Dave, you got the you got the website open? I do, and I'd like to talk about a little of what can be found there. Please. When you bring up Hackett Publishing, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, this is what you'll find. Asian Studies, The Readings in Classical Chinese Philosophy, and this would be the third edition. Then in the middle, René Descartes, The World and Man, a Classical Studies, Essential Greek Historians. Then Modern Languages, Cinema for French Conversation. We scroll down a little bit under New and Forthcoming. Afonso I, The King of Congo, His Life and Correspondence. We also have Black Protagonists of Early Modern Spain. We have Virgil Aeneid, Book 10, Seven Myths of the American Revolution, Seven Myths of the Spanish Inquisition, Seven Myths of the Value of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. No, I guess that's, oh, man. it's not there. No. <laughs> but they've got it all. They do. Yeah, that's Quite incredible. Quite a sampling. Yeah. Now, Jeff, were we approached by um, any other uh, publishers asking to sponsor us? I think we were. Oh, yeah. It was those, it was those, those guys from Wackett. Publishing. Wacket Publishing? Yeah. W-H-A-C-K-E-T-T? Yes. They, they tried to absorb uh, Smacket Publishing in, really? a, in a hostile takeover. Okay. Right? Yeah, so. so what kinds of things does Wacket uh, publish? Oh, the things like the Oxford uh, Handbook of, of Mallets. Okay. Yeah, right? You can also find a, a beginner's guide to smashing. Now, is it mostly pop-up books? <laughs> exactly right. That comes with a, with a little hammer. Okay. Right, so that- and moleskin binding? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. But what did we say to Wacket Publishing? Well, I mean, they they were uh, th- those guys were ridiculous. Kind so. of a uh, fly by the seat of your pants operation. E- exactly right. Yeah. So we stiff armed them. We stiff armed them. We're already taken. Right. You know, so ha- we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing. Right. Not those guys. So okay. Yeah. So um, listeners, go to HackettPublishing.com, H A C K E T T. Not not Wacket. Not Wacket or Smacket. Right. And find the books that you want. Uh, take a look around these their wonderful website and their their massive uh, inventory. Find uh, put the your things in the grocery basket and type in this co- coupon code A N 
2024. And Dave, that will get them 20% off. And Jeff, free shipping. Check it out. All right, Dave, as we get back into it, let's explore this idea that um, Plato's uh, educational ideal early on was geared towards uh, kind of training politicians, but then it becomes much more kind of a broader based thing that becomes something uh, more for the masses. Yes. Yeah. That's great. So page 65 of Maru, he says, Plato was less concerned with the education of the ordinary citizen than with the problem of how to train political technicians, experts in political affairs who could act as advisors to kings or as leaders of the people. It may be that this was an aristocratic prejudice, but it was a remarkable anticipation of what was in fact to become the normal mode of effective political action after the triumph of Macedonia, when the system of absolute monarchy was imposed on the Hellenized world. So just to pause a minute, we, mm-hmm. we thus far don't have what you were asking about, which is the transition, Right. but we're finishing it off. So then yes. as Mahru continues, the role played under Plato by the Academy as nursery of counselors of state was later assumed by the Stoic schools at the beginning of the Hellenistic era, from the generation of the Diadochi onwards. Examples of this are Perseus or Eratos at the court of Antigonus Gennatus, and Spyrus as advisor to Ptolemy Auergetes and Cleomenes of Sparta. So what he's saying is that Plato first began with his education as a system of uh, philosophical training for politicians primarily. Yeah. Then Alexander came along and changed everything. Now um, Greece, so to speak, is not a pan-Hellenic place of uh, competing city-states where a man of great talent and ambition can rise to the top of the individual city-state. Alexander has flattened all that. And everyone lives now under a kind of absolute monarchy. Right. This will have tremendous ramifications for the ambitions of the aristocratic class. Yes, yes, yes. As I was reading that... um it made me think of uh, the modern notion of of the university. Well, you know, especially since like uh, you know the founding of Harvard in the in the 17th century. Um, my sense has always been, uh, really, until you know the middle part of the of the 20th century, that kind of the role of the university almost had this kind of this early Platonic ideal. It was there as kind of a finishing school for leaders. Yeah. Right. And I looked at the Wikipedia page of, of, of alma maters for presidents. Okay. And it was... You did this recently? I did. It's just a couple of days ago. And uh, it didn't... I, I thought it was a lot more... I was I, There'd be a lot more kind of presidents that went came through the Ivies. But um, it was still pretty striking. I think if you put Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, Princeton together, they account for like 11 or 12 of the 46 presidents. That's so, very outsized. Yeah, yeah. And so, but there, I was actually very surprised to see the, the wide breadth of the different schools mm. that uh, various U.S. presidents uh, went to. But it struck me is that, you know, this idea of the modern college of being for everybody yes. is a fairly recent one. Oh, absolutely. Right? Definitely. Yeah. The first uh, school that I went to, School of Higher Education, was Montcalm Community College. Mm-hmm. And guess what county that's in? In Montcalm? That's right. Yes. <laughs> and I took an English course there in the senior, uh, the, this fall of my senior year of high school. Okay. Yeah. And um, did okay. It was good, good instructor as a writing class. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised to learn, or not really, that not a single U.S. president has started out at Montcalm Community College. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> that shocked you? Shocked. <laughs> yeah. How many uh, U.S. presidents have uh, graduated from Grand Rapids Community College? Uh, I think that would be zero. Zero. Yeah. Not even Gerald Ford? No, I think he went right to the University of Michigan. Yes, on his football I scholarship. He's the only U.S. president from, from the University of Michigan. Right. right. Yeah. Now to pick up from Mahru, page 66. 
Plato's work in the sphere of education itself was of much greater historical importance than the political role he had intended it to play. So there's the link. There's the hinge, the pivot. Right. Although designed maybe for political training, that uh, didn't last very long. Right. What it turned into was a system of ethics and instruction. Right. The pursuit of Sophia, right, of knowledge and development of the inner self. Right. So the um, I mean, one of the, the, the things that I think a lot of people kind of generically know about Plato is his famous allegory of the cave, right? And this idea through the pursuit of knowledge, you can free yourself from uh, the chains of ignorance and um, you recognize that the shadows on the wall is not reality and you, you vault over the vault over the fire and, and get out of the cave and you, you're standing under the pure sun of, of, right. of truth or, or, or good. Right? Yes. Yep. I've been thinking about this a little bit lately because of the supposed um, dominance of virtual reality mm. combined with artificial intelligence. Yes. I don't want to fear the boogeyman of the future, but uh, getting quite old myself, that's kind of par for the course, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Isn't that what a curmudgeon does? Absolutely. Yeah. Sits around and, and curses the younger generation and how they're doing everything wrong. Yes, exactly. It, it's it's obligatory. Right. No right. onions on their belts. <laughs> but if people are going to be strapped to uh, virtual reality goggles, that's the cave, yes. right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. uh, this is not reality. You go outside into the bright sunshine, you say, what is that big yellow ball up there? Right. It's right. way too many pixels. Right. And we, we had started the, the the show talking about dated references. Yes. Right. This is the matrix, right? Mm. That, right. The idea that um, uh, we're all kind of you know, we're all stuck in the cave, but you got to take that red pill yeah. to emerge from the cave and see the sun. Yes. Yes. You want to pick up uh, at the bottom of page sixty six for us, Jeff, where Mahru talks about success versus truth. Sure. So Plato's criterion was not success, but truth. Hence, the supreme value of true knowledge based on rigorous demonstration, of which the prototype is geometrical truth, uh, the example given in the Mino. This theme recurs throughout Plato's work. The Protagoras and even the early Socratic dialogues show us that Plato regarded knowledge, the science of the good, as the prerequisite of arete, spiritual nobility, even if he did not identify the two. In the seventh book of the Republic, the famous myth of the cave proclaims the liberating power of knowledge, which redeems the soul from that uncultured state, apodousia, which the Gorgias had already denounced as the greatest of evils. Yeah. So the greatest of evils is lack of paideia, lack yes. of education. You haven't been trained in culture. Right, right. I thought it was interesting as, as Maru goes on. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's hard to kind of nail down. Uh, we don't know kind of Plato's uh, you know, exact thought of when the shift away from kind of the, of the practical political um, track to something a little bit more broad. But he talks about that even... Um, it, with mathematics, which Plato held in high regard. It's, yes. like, it's like the one subject that should be taught to all people at all levels. I think uh, because of its objectivity. Yes, I think so. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a pure science, mm -hmm. as it were. But um, Maru talks about how uh, you know applying mathematics to astronomy, a Platonic point of view was you don't do that ne not necessarily to you know understand how the planets move or to gain more knowledge about the universe. It's more about finding the calculations that the demiurge him or itself uses yes right it's it's, it's to kind of, make things run right and so it's always about kind of boiling it down to kind of its purest philosophical essence and, and away from just kind of a practical understanding of how things fit together how do you feel about that um i'm choosing my words carefully you know i'm not the kind of guy who likes to operate on feelings most of the time although i can't help it but yeah when i say how do you feel about that i really want to know do you have an emotional response to that I do. I think that, um, you know, cer certainly 
in the time that I've taught at Grand Rapids Community College, mm-hmm. I have gained a, a much greater appreci- appreciation for the idea of a, a more practical education. Right. right? Um, most of my students come through are coming through. They are taking my classes not because they want to go into the humanities, but because uh, this is a required general education on their way to becoming. Um, you know, fill in the blank. Right. It's, Computer scientist. Right. Exactly. Engineer, doctor. It, right. Or, or you know, um, dental technician. Right. Right. Um, or along those lines. And so, um, you know, I it, it, one of the things I, th- I found really interesting and fascinating about the Maru chapter was he, he talks about kind of that really that tension between the practical and the ideal right. and the science and the arts is already here. And yes. it seems that even Plato himself was kind of wrestling with the, with those, those things. Right. So I think that one of the reasons it's there is because it's hardwired into the human design. Can I go a little philosophical here? Say some more. Okay. It's hardwired into the human design. Uh, we naturally desire and seek after truth. That's the sensus divinitatis within us. So I remember being in high school And um, my public high school, God bless it, did not have much emphasis at all on humanities and literature. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't an emphasis. I had a couple of good teachers in that realm. But the only place where my mind could be really stimulated was in math and science. Hmm. So I took as much math and science as I could. And it was just so interesting to me to see how things fit together so well. Yeah. So then when I came to Calvin as an undergrad, my intention was to pursue math and science, yeah. physics yeah. or computer science, something like that, because that's all I knew. Mm-hmm. Then when I took um, philosophy courses and language courses, uh, thankfully, my teachers treated those subjects with as much rigor and with as much respect as the math and science professors treated their subjects. Yes. So I think what Plato was after is that he truly believes um, knowledge is unified. Truth about human nature, about right and wrong, yeah. is as objective as geometric truths. Right. So in the same way that, um, I don't know, every right angle is 90 degrees, Yes. we ought to be able to know that in a given setting, this is the holy and this is not. Okay, yeah. Now, I've met people in my life, maybe you have too, who... Um, greatly dislike the humanities, not because of their lack of practicality, but because of the um, supposed subjectivity. Yes. Uh, Someone would say, you know, I I can't study English literature because it appears it's just a matter of opinion. Yeah. You know, I think Shakespeare means this. You mean Shakespeare. You think Shakespeare means that. Who's to decide? Right. It's not as simple as, you know, 4X equals 8 X is two rather than something else. Right, right, right. Have you encountered that attitude before? Of course. Okay. Absolutely. How do you respond to it? Well, I mean, it reminds me of of conversations actually that that you and and I have had. They might sound like I'm maybe dodging the question a little bit. But um, typical. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember having conversations uh, um, about. You know, people questioning kind of you. Know, what, well, what's the value of going into the right. classics, right? And and you saying something along the lines of, um, the fact that a subject um, awakens interest, fascinating. You're yeah. drawn. You're drawn to something. That's enough. You know, and I think that there's kind of Platonic language that you know. The one of the things that that Plato says that about while math is good is that it awakens the soul, right? Right. And for a subject to kind of awaken enthusiasm and wonder, right? Um, why can't that be reason enough to, sure. to to study it? And then maybe talking about disagreement or maybe the inability to say that this is what this myth means, right? Is uh, a red herring. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah. Um, I maybe take it in a 
you know, push it a little bit further, perhaps it's a different direction. I've gotten into arguments with folks um, about their, no surprise, about their aesthetic choices, mm-hmm. right? So this movie or that movie is better or worse. Yes. This book or that book um, or different genres of music. Yes. And some of the people with whom I'm arguing, when it comes to moral questions, like myself, they're fairly absolutist. Yes. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to lie. And if they met persons who had a kind of moral relativism, they would be really upset. Yes. But relative, a kind of subjectivity or relativism with respect to aesthetic choices, they're totally comfortable with that. Yes. And I've tried to point out, I don't think that's consistent. Right. Yeah. And I think I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to channel Plato here for lack of a better term. Yeah. If there's objectivity in uh, mathematics, why would there not be objectivity in other areas of human knowledge? Maybe there isn't. Yeah. But you got to make an argument for yes. that. Oh, without a doubt, right? So um, this reminds me of a of a movie that we we both dislike. Oh, the, right, the, the Dead Poet Society. Oh, right? yes. <laughs> right? And there's a scene. Are we going to make a joke about that? I think we are later. <laughs> later, right? later. On, yeah. So but still, go ahead. Stay tuned. And so, um, you know the the idea that's kind of propagated in that film is very much kind of the the subjective romantic kind of syrupy notion of of the humanities and poetry right and there's a scene early on where um robin williams right. the teacher hands out a textbook and he has them read and the, t- and the textbook talks about how do you know if a poem is good well this is a way to graph it okay. right and there's one of the kids that start you know getting out their protractors you know to kind of decide if this poem is good and of course the 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 hook is that he tells them to rip that page out because that's not how you do poetry <laughs> so i think like, what we're talking about yeah um how about neither nor Right. Okay. Is that, I mean, I think you're right uh, to apply some kind of objective lens because this idea or, that. Or to desire. Desi- oh, right. E- even if it can't necessarily be applied, why should I not desire the same kind of objectivity in aesthetics that already exists in mathematics? Right. Exactly. And th- this idea that, that um, um, all art is equal. Right. Simply because you can't, you can't come to a mathematical conclusion why this is good and right. this is bad. That seems to be kind of just throwing it out the baby out with the bathwater. I also think, frankly, I mean, perhaps we're digressing from Mahru, but I think it'd be all right, um, that people are frankly inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. So they like some things better than others. And if you like some things better than others, there's an implicit criticism of that other thing. Sure. Right? Yeah. So you, for example, with your vast knowledge of pop music, um, what's one song I like that you hate? We Built This City? Starship. Yes. Right. Yeah. So you're not going to grant to me, I hope, that my um, my joy in that song is legitimate because you have objective criteria for what makes a good pop song. I do. Yeah. And uh, We Built This City does not meet them. It, that's very true. So it would be wrong of you to say, yeah, you like it, I don't. I guess we're both right. Right. Of course not. Right, exactly. You you would be objectively wrong. Correct. In, 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 like, in like that song. And I'm willing. I'm willing to. Uh, I'm willing to accept that outcome. You know, if you can prove it. Yes. Right. But if we reduce everything in aesthetics to pure subjectivity, I don't. I'm not comfortable with that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that most people are not comfortable with it either, even if they can't articulate the reasons why Jeff's wrong about Starship and I'm right. <laughs> Exactly. Is it Mickey Thomas? Isn't he the singer? Uh, yes, he's involved. Grace Slick is in there, too. Yeah, there's some great vocals. Uh, yeah. 
let's not go down that path. Okay. Please. I was having such a good time. <laughs> All right. But it reminds me, uh, when I teach my film class, I often start with, you know, the the, the American Film Institute's like top 100 okay. films of all time. We yeah. look, at, look at the top 10. Right. And then the, the obvious question that the students ask, well, uh, well, well, you know, Citizen where is Star Wars? Is, uh, Star Wars actually, it's actually number fifteen. Really? Yeah. It's, it's Which shocking. one? The first one. The first one. That's okay. The only one. But uh, the number one slot is almost always Citizen Kane. Huh. Right. And that's become one of these things that people just accept that Citizen Citizen Kane is the greatest film of all time. But yeah. you, you step back. Well, why is that? Right. So hmm. it's fine to have that judgment, but let's make an argument. Yeah. Right. Let's go into, into seeing what 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 criteria is yeah. used to make that decision. Right. That and can be done. Is it going to surprise you that I haven't seen Citizen Kane? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> Ought I see Citizen Kane? Yeah, for the, for the sake of, I mean, if you're inter- interested at all in the history of film, I would say yes. If not, no. Oh, no don't bother. I appreciate that. Yep. Utopia and the future as we start to wind down, wrap up this episode. Yes. Uh, this is page 68. Uh, Mahru says, needless to say, I am not claiming that within the narrow framework of the Academy... Plato systematically put into practice the plans which he elaborated with all the freedom of a theorist in these two great works, referring to the Republic and the Laws. He himself insisted that the fulfillment of his educational idea, ideal excuse me, was dependent on a reorganization of the state. This brings up a point I think that's worth mentioning. A lot of people in their reading of the Republic assume that Plato intends this to be implemented. Yes. The other, right, 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 the right. other, and competing uh, interpretation, which I favor, is that Plato knows full well this is totally impractical, mm. and that the Republic is meant to be more a metaphor for the human soul ah. than it is a program for the organization of a state. That would seem to me much fit much better with the t- the the time and the era in which it was. Written, oh yeah, right. Um, and so it fits much that that interpretation fits much better with kind of where the, his ideals of education were going. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, Jeff, we're kind of up against it. We are, and yeah. uh, we got a lot of uh, interesting portions of this chapter yet to cover. Right. It's, it doesn't shock me that we weren't able to kind of cover all of um, no. Plato in, in one episode. Right. <laughs> so we've got uh, Utopia and the Future, mm-hmm. which we just started on the traditional elementary education. Uh, what else do we have here to cover? With just to give the the audience a kind of a foretaste the role of mathematics we've yeah. talked about that a little bit but that's huge it yep. is yep mathematics plays a huge role the cycle of philosophical studies the greatness and the solitude of the philosopher mm-hmm. uh, that's the final portion of this chapter on plato so i think we have to put that off until the next episode until next time right but before we get out of here uh dave talk to us a little bit about this this thing called the moss method and llpsi absolutely so moss method for greek is a program that i have put together and if you want to learn how to read plato you might think it's out of reach it's not it is within reach Uh, I think a portion of our audience is very interested in uh, the Christian faith. Some of them might read the New Testament in Greek. They've been to seminary, they're out of seminary, or maybe their main motive in in studying Greek is to read the New Testament. That's a motive I affirm and encourage. However, uh, the Greek of the New Testament, the Koine dialect, is descended from the Attic, which Plato spoke. And I can tell you for sure that if you enrich your knowledge of Greek by studying Uh, Plato, Isocrates, Lysias. Who are some of your favorite Greek authors? 
My, fa- my favorite Greek authors. Yes. I, I got to go with Homer. Homer. Right. Um, and, uh, Euripides. Euripides. Yep. Aristophanes. Um, Sophocles. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Reading these guys is within your reach and it will greatly enrich your knowledge of the New Testament. I can guarantee that. Without a doubt. So if you want to go from... Uh, neophytes to erudite. Go to mossmethod.com, please. Check out the offerings I have on my YouTube channel. Lots of free Greek lessons. Over 2,000 now, right? Yes, and Latin lessons, 2,057, something like that. Fantastic. Keeping a tally. And then check out the course where you can sign up. I uh, I teach you how to read this stuff. It's a good value, I'm sure. And um, see what else should we say about? Oh, the Moffis hours. Yes. Oh, I love the Moffis. Want to say a, a word about them? So um, it's every Friday, right? That's right. Uh, you guys get together digitally uh, on on Zoom, and you have people from around the world. I think that's the that's the the it's coolest exciting. thing, right? So people doing so. Uh, if you want to do this, you're not going to be doing it alone. No, no, yeah. no. We're reading a little bit of easy selections from Xenophon right now. Mm-hmm. Just fascinating stuff. Jeff, you should pop in, make a cameo. Sometime. Oh man, I would love to join the Moffat's Hours. Yeah. Just kind of, uh, to zoom bomb it. There you go. <laughs> and do I have a Latin program? Yes, you do. Yes, it's called uh, Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata by Hans Orberg. Latin teaches itself. Go to latinperdiem.com/llpsi. Once again, it is, I think, the best value available. It's neither the cheapest or necessarily the best instruction, I can't say, but the combination of the price and what you get in terms of my expertise, I think it's an unbeatable value. Excellent. And as always, we have people to thank. We thank uh, Mishka for putting this all together so wonderfully, so quickly that the, her turnaround time is is um, is, is incredible. Uh, thanks to Scott Vinzen, Ken Tamplin, uh, they are the guys behind the great music that you hear throughout the podcast. Um, they always, every time I hear them, they make me want to give up playing guitar because what's the point? <laughs> I think it's rock and or roll. That's what think? it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, what if they want to get a t-shirt, Jeff, or a hat to show that they're taking in the classics and keeping them down? They can go to our website. Yes. Uh, Adnauseum.com. That's, um, uh, don't forget that V. That's there, right. And go to the Lurch with Merch section mm-hmm. and uh, pick up one of these wonderful black and, and orange uh, classically themed uh, t-shirts. Yes. Quite no Kent, do Kent. What hurts, teaches. Yes. And if you want to get in touch with Jeff, uh, write to Jeff. J-E-F-F at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the VEC. If you can ask him a pop culture question to stump him. Bring it on. Yes. And if you uh, have a question for Dave, you can write to him at Dave at adnauseum.com. Again, don't forget the V. And what do I like to hear from the listeners? You'd like to hear uh, both praise and criticism? Yes, the yeah. two things I can't handle. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, Jeff, what's what's on tap for next week? I think we're going to we're gonna pick this up. We're going to try to do our best to kind of cap off the look at uh, education in the in the hands of Plato. Yes. And yeah. we have some great uh, we have some great guests coming up, yeah, too. I'm excited. We're going to get Stanley Lombardo back here in the studio, in here in the studio yep. uh, before long. And um, a Newberry Prize uh, medalist is also going to grace us with his presence once more. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. I believe, uh, Dr. Winkle, you have yeah. the gustatory parting shot. Yes, this is from the great Jack Handy, who was famous for his deep thoughts back mm-hmm. in the 80s. Do you remember these? Oh, I <laughs> do. I remember many of those. I love them. And this is one of my favorites where he says, When you die, if you get a choice between going to regular heaven or pie heaven, choose pie heaven. It might be a trick, but if it's not, ooh, boy. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Thanks.